We are going to be in uh, Luke today, specifically Luke 12, verse 54, going to 13, 9. As you guys flip there, Luke 12, 54, I ask you a question. Does anyone know what the word pent means? Pent, P-E-N-T. It's an important word because if you don't know what the word pent means, I don't know how you will know how we will know how to repent. Um, so when you think about that, if we don't know what penting is, how do we know what repenting is? We'll get to that by the end of the sermon, God willing. Verse 54, he also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hands you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you'll never get out until you've paid the very last penny. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told them this parable. <clears throat> a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let, let it alone this year also until I dig around and put manure on it. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. We're finishing today Jesus' um, discourse that began back in 12.1, if you'll remember. And we've spent a number of weeks, and we'll try to tie it all together today, but this is one single discourse. It is a, a summary point of the entire discourse, and if you have a piece of paper, you're taking notes, I'll, I'll give you the three headers you could, you could hang on to. Um, if you want the, the straight ones without the linguistic you know, tie-in, it's going to be the evidence in verse 54 to 56. It's going to be the offer in verses 57 to 59. So we have the evidence, the offer, and then the parable in 13, 1 through 9. And if you want those to sound better with, with uh, letter tie-ins, I would call it the setting, the settling, and the saving. So let's start with the evidence or the setting. Large crowd, Jesus is speaking to them. It's a teaching about what it means to follow him. And he says, y'all are really good at interpreting the signs of the time. If, if you see clouds coming up in the west, you know it's going to rain. If you feel the wind blowing from the south, you know it's going to be hot. Well, well, what is wrong with you people? What is wrong with you hypocrites? You know how to, with a minimal amount of evidence, make a logical, true um, conclusion. 
but with the most minimal, maximum amount of evidence about who I am, says Jesus, you can't seem to do the same thing. So remember, this is a, the book of Luke. It comes in one, one full flow. You got Zechariah and Elizabeth. You got the virgin birth. You got Simeon and Anna in the temple. You got the Father and the Holy Spirit at the baptism of Christ. You have John the Baptist preaching. You have Jesus preaching. You have the authenticating signs of Jesus, healing the sick, casting out demons, controlling nature, raising the dead. And he says to these people, listen, you know the cloud means rain. You know the wind means heat. You know what these signs mean. They mean that I am Messiah. I have come last Sunday. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled, but it's not kindled yet because before the judgment comes an offer of grace and mercy. So Jesus is saying to this crowd in light of all the teaching they've heard, not just from 12.1, but, but through his whole life, y'all are hypocrites because if you think you need more evidence, you're out of your mind. Don't lose that. People don't deny Christ for lack of evidence. So there's a place for apologetics. There's a marvelous place for apologetics. But people don't come to faith because they examine the evidence and the evidence is sufficient. Because what that is, is looking at Jesus's resume and deciding you'd like to hire him. Now, the, the evidence that you don't want to see if you don't trust in Christ is your sin and separation because of a holy God. And, and we'll get to this. Remember back in Luke 4, Jesus went to Nazareth to the synagogue. Hometown boy comes home done good. People don't move in that time. Everyone's known him since he was a little kid. He preaches in the synagogue, Isaiah 61.1. The end result is they want to throw him over a cliff. Why? Well, well, it wasn't that they didn't have ample evidence to know Jesus was something special. They didn't have a, a lack of evidence to know that he was exactly who he claimed to be. It wasn't that they didn't want the kingdom. It wasn't that they didn't want to be saved. It wasn't they didn't want eternal life. What they didn't want was a cure Jesus offered based on the diagnosis that he made that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Jesus is saying to this crowd, look at the evidence. Y'all can do this with minimal evidence. Look at the big evidence. God's favor is offered, but his favor is not forever, right? So then he talks about going to court and he says, listen, but, but before you end up in the court with God and the judgment comes down and you're cast in hell forever, you want to settle out of court. You want to talk to the magistrate and settle before you get to the judge. And the way you do this, this is 2 Corinthians 5. See if I can get there real quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you go to verse, let's see, uh, 18. All this is from God, who through Christ is, has reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We, listen to this, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know what that's saying? It's saying you want to settle out of court with God because by the time you get to court, it's going to be too late. So he's saying to the crowd, 
listen, y'all see me, y'all hear me, y'all know what I do. Listen, listen to the evidence. Look at the evidence. It's abundant evidence. And I know y'all can connect evidence to conclusions. And here's the evidence. I came to cast fire and would that it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to go through first. Settle with God out of court because you don't want to deal with settling with him in court. Well, how do you settle with God out of court? You repent. So there are present people and they say to him, well, Jesus, y'all haven't heard the accents in about three months. I don't know how, how good they are, right? Well, Jesus, you've heard about the Galileans. How about the Galileans that Pilate mingled their blood with their sacrifices? My accents have apparently changed. We got to go back British. Here's what happened. During the Passover, almost certainly, because that would be the only time people would be involved in the sacrifice, Pilate sent some of his guards in who killed some Galileans for whatever reason while they were offering their sacrifices in the temple and the blood mingled. And they say their implication, remember we're talking about judgment, verse 49, so, Jesus, how is it that they were killed? Is that the judgment of God that you're talking about? And he answers them, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And what happens there is there's a Jewish theology of catastrophe. You know the Jewish theology of catastrophe? It goes something like this. You, you ever read the book of Job? If you read Job, you meet this guy named Eliphaz, good friend to Job. And Job had all this stuff going on, you know, because the devil said to God, you know, how about how, this guy only loves you because what you do for him. And God says to the, the devil, have you considered my servant Job for there is none like him, a, 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 a righteous man? Well, with a little, little, bit of, a little bit of sifting going on, but, but Job wouldn't be lost because God held him secure. But while Job lost everything, his good buddy Eliphaz says to him, Job 4.7, I'll paraphrase it for you. Well, Job, you know why this is happening. Because you got a sin issue. And you got to fix yourself. Do you really think God would do this if you didn't have a sin issue that he had to deal with? And you think, well, that's awful cruel. But then you flip over to John chapter 9 and you see Jesus walking with his disciples and they see a blind man. And you remember what they said to Jesus when they saw the blind man? Teacher, who sinned, this, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because see, here's the Jewish theology of catastrophe. And before you make fun of it, y'all got it in there too. Bad happening to you is a result of sin in your life and God's displeasure. Good happening to you is a result of righteousness in your life and God's pleasure. And if you stop and think, you ask a question, uh, I'll make it easy. Why do we have a global pandemic today? What is God trying to, to teach us as, as, as a country? Well, I know God's calling us to turn back to him and be saved so that he can heal our land. And you want to spin a little Old Testament scripture out of context, you can ask me about that another time. Or a tsunami comes. Why would God allow a tsunami to come and kill all these people? Answers pouring. Well, God wants to do something, but he couldn't. Or they deserved it. They were bad people. They were being judged. We can even make it a little smaller. Why didn't I get that promotion? What is God trying to teach me? Where's the sin in my life that I didn't get that promotion? Oh my goodness, I need to identify the sin so I can have God's favor. Or spin it the other way. I got the promotion. Praise God. 
But if I'm honest, I kind of I kind of deserve that promotion. I was working hard. I'm doing stuff pleasing to God. And you see, there's the upside to pleasing God. You get good when you please God. You get bad when you don't. And this is a Jewish theology of, of catastrophe. And what Jesus is saying is your, your theology is screwy. You know why those Galileans were, were killed by Pilate? It wasn't because they were the worst sinners in the land. And then he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then Jesus says, how about the 18 killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? You know what Siloam is? You've heard of it because Jesus sent a blind guy to the pool of Siloam to wash. You remember that? So Siloam is where the water came into Jerusalem. And the Romans were marvelous aqueduct builders. And so the aqueduct would begin in Siloam and pull throughout the city. And there, there's um, archaeological, they're not even archaeological to an extent. You, you can go and see the, the ruins of the, the aqueducts even today. Well, it looks like there was a construction accident. And some people were in the wrong place at the wrong time and a tower fell. Maybe an existing tower became structurally weak. Or maybe a tower being built fell. This would have been, you know, on the, they didn't have uh, per, permanues like we have today. I don't know if permanues is a, a term I just coined there. But, you know, 24-7 news cycle. They had what would be the Jerusalem Gazette. You know, we get, we get news from all over the world. They just had the news from Jerusalem. And Jesus is just pulling the front page of the Jerusalem Gazette. It's not really a Jerusalem Gazette. You know what I'm saying? And he says, well, you know those folks, the 18 who died when the tower fell on them and killed them? You think that they were some wicked sinners that God was just knocking out? Wrong. He says, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Well, why is he talking about people repenting when he's talking about catastrophes? Here's a catastrophe question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Right? You ever get that question? Why do bad things happen to good people? Here's the biblical question. Why do good things happen to bad people? Because who's good? No one is righteous, no, not one. Who, who earns, who deserves God's favor? None by our own merit. So Jesus is pivoting, pivoting the point. Guys, the question isn't why do bad things happen to good people? Those people weren't the worst people in Jerusalem, for all have sinned and fall short of the righteousness of God. The question you need to ask is why would God do anything good for people who are only bad? See, Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost, not to seek and save that which was wonderful. And then he tells this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in a vineyard. Now slow down a little bit. What grows in a vineyard? Like vines, a vineyard? What's a fig tree doing in a vineyard? Well, they offer shade, they offer fruit, but the reason they plant them in vineyards is the soil in vineyards is marvelously rich, marvelously cultivated, and fig trees thrive in a vineyard. It's the best soil you're going to get. In the, it's the best land. There's no way a fig tree is not going to grow in a vineyard. And this fig tree was planted three years ago. And after three years, the man who owns the vineyard goes to the fig tree and says, sucker ain't fruiting out. This is a dud. Chop it down. There's no reason to have a fig tree that won't bear fruit. You want to have a little fun here? Fast forward. You remember you got, you got the, the entry into Jerusalem. Remember Jesus is talking and my goodness, they passed by a fig tree, didn't they? And didn't Jesus curse the fig tree? 
Well, hang on a minute, because I'm jumping ahead of myself. We got to get we got to get all the way to Jerusalem to talk about the tie in there. But he says, there's no fruit. It's been three years. He says to the vine dresser, cut it down. Sounds like John the Baptist. The axe is laid at the root of the tree. But hang on a minute. We're not going all the way back there today. We're going to stick here. And the vine dresser says, sir, let it, let it alone this year also. I'll dig around it. I'll put manure on it. Please give me one more year with this thing. Just one more year. Give it another chance. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but, 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 but if not, you can cut it down. Can we have just one more, one more little bit of time? What's going on here? The tree parable is one simple, straight point. Every parable has one main point. The tree is you and me. The owner is God. The vine dresser is Jesus. Jesus and the fruit is repentance and love of God. And what he's saying is, we must bear fruit or we'll get chopped down. Said another way, God's favor is but for a moment. His grace is offered, but not forever. So our job to repent and believe the gospel. Fun little high side note, historically, y'all know Martin Luther, the guy who nailed the 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg. God used him in a, in a critical role in the Protestant Reformation. You know what point one was of the 95 Theses? All of the Christian life is repentance. And he pulls that off of the Gospel of Mark, but in many other places. You ever, you ever think about that? All of the Christian life is repentance. First, it's repentance to salvation, but then it's repentance to sanctification. But that leads to a question. What is repentance. I think we assume repentance is a, a, a vague sense of sin with a little bit of guilt mixed in. You know you, you know you did something bad, you know it's not okay, and you feel kind of sorry for it. Well, that's not repentance. What is repentance? Well, Jesus is showing us what repentance is all throughout this text in a, a marvelous way. Let me say, why repentance and then what repentance? How about that? Romans. Since we as a church went through the book of Romans, I'm sure everyone is fluent with every verse in it, right? Well, in Romans 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You ever think about that? Or you flip over to, um, to Paul in, in, in 1 Timothy. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now I'll show you something else here. Psalm, Psalm 136. And I can't hear your pages, so I hope you're keeping up. If not, I guess you can go back on the tape delay. Psalm 136, marvelous psalm, read, read occasionally in, in services where <clears throat> the pastor read the first part of the stanza, and the church reads the second. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. 
Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. And that's repeated in every single verse, but here's what you don't want to miss. His steadfast love endures forever only for some. And it's for those who repent and believe in the gospel. But for all, there's a measure of his love and mercy, and that's the point Jesus is driving home. Jesus came that you might settle with God out of court. Jesus came because you are a fig tree that's bearing no fruit. Jesus came to cast fire on the earth, but before the fire would cast, the out-of-court settlement was offered. Turn to him and be saved. 2 Corinthians right, 5, God reconciling the world to himself. Because you see in a book like Hosea in chapter 4, I think it's verse 17 or, or 5, 6, God's grace is not forever. There does come a moment in time when God pulls back his grace. And there's a warning to the non-believer there. Don't presume on God's grace. Repent. So what is repent? Well, it's really quite marvelously simple. You realize that you deserve to have a tower fall on you. So the ones who the tower didn't fall on in Siloam were only surviving because of God's grace. The ones whose blood Pilate didn't scatter were only not scattered because of God's grace. The reason you haven't died of a tsunami is because God has by his grace chosen to keep you from a tsunami. The reason you haven't died from whatever is because of God's grace, because by our life, through our sin, the wages of sin is death. So it's not, why do bad things happen to good people? It's, that's, that, that's a fair question for Jesus to ask, because he's the only good person, but he already knows the answer. The question that leads to repentance is, God, why would you do anything good to me, a sinner? I don't deserve your favor. That's why it's called grace. So the first part of repentance is realizing you deserve to have a tower fall on you. The second part of repentance is to realize that God is committed to and thrilled to save you from the tower of his wrath. God doesn't give you what you deserve. He gives you what you don't deserve, which is grace, mercy, forgiveness, sonship, adoption, riches, co-regency, and on and on. Why? Not because you're a good person, but because it's the antithesis of what you merit. You're a new creation. So, so repentance is this. Man, I stink. Man, I'm stupid. Man, I'm selfish. Man, I'm ignorant. Man, I'm prideful. Man, I, 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 am, I am, wow. But God is gracious. God is merciful. God is patient. God is forgiving. God has shown me what sin is. And sin begins with the fact that I think I am the most important person in the entire world. And I think the world should serve me. And I think my will should be done and my kingdom should come and my name should be hallowed. And if you don't serve me, that's a problem. And then I realize, wait a minute, that's God's seat, not mine. And I don't come to be served, says Christ. I came to serve. And then he calls his people to serve. And then you see sin for what it is and yourself for who you were and now yourself for who you are in Christ. And you realize the commandments of God are not burdensome, but a joy and a delight to the heart. And here's what's going on. And here, here's what's hard with preaching through scripture. 
There's so much there I want to just put on the table here, but I can only give you a little bit. Starting in Luke 12, 1, here's what Jesus says. I'll summarize five weeks of sermons for you here. Jesus says to follow me, to be my disciple, if you want to truly be saved, you must, M-U-S-T, you must, not optional behavior, you must, ready? Starting in 12.1, abandon false teaching. Moving on from there, fear God. Confess Christ before men as your Lord and Savior. Listen to the Holy Spirit by submitting to Scripture. Turn from loving this world to loving God. Set your heart on the kingdom of God. Do this with urgency because Jesus is coming back. Be willing to be divided in any and every relationship for the name of Christ, even those most intimate relationships in the family context. Settle with God out of court. And listen close here, Jesus says, you must bear fruit or you will be chopped down. You want to be my disciple. You want to be saved. You want eternal life. You must do all of these things. And then in the American church, we go, oh, that's so silly. You don't have to do all those things. You just invite Jesus into your heart and you'll be saved. Hang on a minute, because that doesn't sound like the Jesus I know in Scripture. It's not inviting Jesus into your heart. It's Jesus giving you a new heart by grace through faith. And the evidence of that new heart is this. You don't say to Jesus, I got your checklist. I'll go ahead and pull it off so that I can be saved. You've missed the whole gospel. You say to Jesus, I see your checklist, but, but, but Lord, I, I, I can't do that. If I'm honest, I don't even want to do that. That's a problem, but, 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 but I recognize the problem isn't with your list. The problem is with me. Help me, save me, forgive me, make me new. And Jesus promises too. So when you are a child of God, here's the evidence you see in your life. You begin to be able to identify and abandon false teaching. The leaven of the, the Pharisees is, is what he talks about, but there's all sorts of false teaching. You don't want your ears tickled. You want living bread and living water. You fear God. Well, what does it mean to fear God? It doesn't mean you're afraid of God. It means that you confess Christ before men. You live as he is your Lord and Savior. Well, how do you live as he is your Lord and Savior? You listen to the Holy Spirit. And that's not some weird little go into the woods and pray and hear a voice. That's not what Scripture's talking about there. It's listening to the Word of God. That's where the Holy Spirit speaks and submitting to the Word of God, which is how you confess Christ, which is how you fear God. And that's what believers do. You turn from loving this world because we all do love this world in the flesh. And little by little, we're not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds so that by testing, we may discern what is the will of God, what's good and acceptable and perfect. You set your heart on the kingdom because where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And you do it with urgency because he can be coming back at any moment. His return is imminent. You be willing to be divided relationally, not because you're a jerk, but because you love Jesus, and if the world hated Jesus, the world will hate you. And it doesn't mean every relationship you have will be divided. But it means if you need to make a choice between even your very own child and Jesus, Jesus is to win the day. It means you settle with God out of court. It means you, you, you take his, his terms of, of surrender, and you marvel at the fact it's not just surrender, but it's adoption. And then you bear fruit. The fruit of repentance in all of life. And loving God, well, well, how is a Christian supposed to repent? What do you repent of? Well, my friends, that's the joy of life in Christ. Because if we go back to Luke 9, I believe it was 23. We'll find out in a minute here. 
Yeah, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. You know what deny himself means? It means you stop associating with the old self. You stop leaning on your, your human wisdom. You, you stop leaning on the, the wisdom of the world. You realize my old self was dumb, naive, arrogant, prideful, uh, foolish. I thought I was super smart when in reality I was pretty dumb. It's like the, um, the, the young teenager who says to the parent, you don't know what you're talking about. You're going to ruin my whole life. You don't understand. Who then has to call the parent 20 years down the road and say, I'm really sorry. I didn't realize how stupid I was and how smart you were. You were way smarter than I realized. Well, infinitely expanded out. Deny yourself, meaning every day it's a battle to see where we're, where we're walking in our old identity, where we're trusting in our old self, where we're seeing ourselves as who we were in Adam, not who we are in Christ, and where we're acting like who we were in Adam, not in the power of the Holy Spirit, resurrection power in Christ. It's taking up our cross daily. It's daily killing sin. And then it's following Jesus, not because it's convenient, not because it's comfortable, not because we have something to benefit personally from it, but because he is God himself. And it's this progression through life where we recognize sin by grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. We repent of sin when we turn to God to enjoy him, first for salvation and then in sanctification. And you must bear fruit. Well, how do you bear fruit, right? How, how do you muster it up? How, you know, a tree is known by its fruit. I think there are a lot of people that, that go under the term of, I don't think again, I, I think, I don't think, I think. We, we've all seen this. There are many who take on the name of Christian that bear wax fruit. Remember years ago, I, I came to visit my parents and my mom had these really delicious apples in the middle of the dining room table and, and I grabbed one, it felt a little strange and you go and take a bite and it wasn't apple, it was wax. It looked identical to an apple. It didn't taste like an apple. It tasted like wax. And what often happens is we try to put on the pretense of wax fruit because we assume in our mind's eye that, that well, this is what a Christian is supposed to look like. No. A Christian is supposed to look like, and, and we've talked about this this week a little bit, read through the, the grand narrative of Scripture and look at the people that, that God has saved, that he has made righteous, the people he uses most mightily. Guys, they're absolute disasters. I think most churches, the, the church would struggle to even allow them in their midst. I mean, just, just think about that for a moment. Imagine if Noah lived in our time. You, you find out about Noah's drinking problem and his philandering around in the family setting problem. You might be like, oh, I'm not so sure you're even saved. I don't know if I want you hanging out with us. Um, Abraham, you know, he's got a lot of highlights. I don't know about the lowlights. David, you, I mean, you really want a, an adulterer and a murderer on your hands who's culpable for the deaths of thousands and tens of thousands of people because of his sin? I'm just saying we might not want him there. How about, how about Sweet Pete the Apostle? I mean, this guy denied Christ. He, he was such a wimp to, a, to a, little, a little servant girl. He couldn't even stand up and proclaim his, his, his trust in Christ. 
Paul, Paul would scare you, right? Because you'd remember Paul's past and you'd be wondering, well, now, wait a minute, this, this guy's just infiltrated. He's just one of, see, and, and here's the thing. I wonder if Jesus himself came, how, how comfortable we would be in having him sit in our midst. Well, see, here's the problem. It's us. Our job isn't to pretend. Our job is to repent. And as we repent, as we trust in God, God bears fruit in us. So back it all the way up and we'll finish it out this way. How often do we think that when we're trying to, to share the gospel with a lost person, we have to be so careful in presenting the evidence in a way that, that it'll convince them and they'll trust in it. Now we're called to persuade, don't miss, right? Paul, Paul on, on Mars Hill, <clears throat> he was persuasive, he was, he was trying to compel, he was becoming all things to all people so that some might be saved. But, but guys, no one denies Christ because of a lack of evidence. People deny Christ because they suppress the truth. And the way to be saved isn't to submit to the evidence, it's to submit to Christ himself, which is done by repentance, because you realize there's a looming tower over your head, of the wrath of God that could fall at any moment on you. There's an ax laid at the root of a tree that can start chopping at any moment. There, there is a cursing that will come, which, which goes all the way back to, um, looking at my notes here to make sure I get my verses right, which goes all the way back to the, the book of Exodus, where God promises, God, God promises, that, that look, look at Exodus 34 for a minute. We'll start laying in the plane here. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Right? We like that verse so far. You can even put it up on your wall. Lost people would like that verse. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, now you got to stop there. You got to get a, get a marker and pull out the, where I go on from here because now it's going to get a little uncomfortable. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. And I think we talked about that two weeks ago in Sunday in, in Real Conversations. God's not cursing the children because of their father's sin. He's talking about the effect of the father's sin upon the generations to come. But notice that God is gracious and merciful, but his grace and mercy ends at a point. And that's what we're presenting when we present the gospel to people. We're, we're presenting 2 Corinthians 5, God making his appeal through us. Settle out of court. Settle out of court. You don't want to go to court. Settle out of court. What's the settlement? That God sent his son to die on the cross, to pay the debt you owed so that you might be forgiven, reconciled, made new, adopted, and on and on and on. Settle out of court. So you look at this whole thing here, and there should be an unsettledness. This, this being a disciple of Jesus, being a Christian, being saved, it's actually impossible. It's absolutely impossible to pull off because it's not about moral reformation. It's not about keeping the right rules. It's about recognizing, again, the grand narrative of Scripture, here are the people God uses. People who recognize they are lost and spend their whole life repenting 
and being sanctified through repentance. You go, you go throughout Scripture in a variety of places. I think of, of Acts 2, the first gospel, first gospel proclamation post the ascension. Peter preaches, the, the Holy Spirit quickens the hearts of some people. The people say, what should we do? And do you remember what Jesus says? Or what Jesus, what Peter says after they say, what should we do? Repent. You go to uh, Mark. Look at the, the very beginning of, of Mark. You know, Mark chapter 1. I believe it's verse 15, or 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Oh, this is going to be good. Jesus, is pro Jesus himself proclaiming the gospel of God. What's he going to do? He's going to tee up the evidentiary display. He's going, to, he's going to be persuasive, right? He's going to explain to you the nuances. He's going to show the benefits. He's going to apply the gospel to felt needs, because if you can apply the gospel to felt needs, well, then people will trust in him. Let's hear what he has to say. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Here we go. Repent and believe in the gospel. What does that mean? There's a fire coming, but there's salvation before the fire burns, before the kindling is set. And when that fire lights, when the judgment comes, you never know the day. Jesus coming back, it's you going to Jesus. And the only reason any person draws breath is so that they can turn to God and be saved. And for those who are saved, it's a life of continual repentance as we are conformed to the image of Christ. So it leads to, a, to an awkwardness, to a discomfort, because Jesus is not calling us to some little Choose Jesus as, you know, your, your little hero, put his poster on the wall and rah, rah, be a fan of Jesus. No, he's calling you to actually self-suicide. Look at 923. He's calling you to, to old self-suicide and walking in new birth in Christ. And as we do that, we recognize how incredibly gracious and merciful he is. <clears throat> Repent and believe the gospel. I'll, I'll end on this. How do you know when you've truly repented? Well, there, there are a lot of different markers, but the marker of false repentance is its despondency, depression, and grief over what a horrible, wicked, vile person you are. That's false repentance. Or false repentance comes across as thinking you got that off your chest, now you're good. True repentance is identified by an accurate view of who you are on your own and who you are in Christ. There, there's a joy and a freedom and a boldness that comes through true repentance. Because in true repentance, you no longer have to conceal your sin because Christ has atoned for that sin in totality. Through true repentance, you realize that, that God rejoices and delights in you by grace through faith so why would you fear man? Fear God, confess Christ, trust in the Holy Spirit. True repentance is marked by bearing fruit. What does that fruit look like? Well, primarily loving God and loving others as he calls us to. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But it all begins with, and it all continues with, 
repent and believe the gospel. So what do you do with this Jesus guy? Well, if you don't know him, you should be terrified by him. Because he will return. He will judge the earth. And he's already let you know that the, the judgment's coming down. The verdict is already in. Guilty, guilty, guilty. And the sentence is an eternity in hell under the wrath of God. You can scoff at him, but it doesn't change truth. It's not that you need evidence that you're a sinner or that he's a savior. The evidence isn't the issue. It's a suppression of the truth. Understand, you draw breath today because God is offering you forgiveness. Turn to him and be saved. For those of us who are saved, how do we, how do we see Jesus? How, how, how are we supposed to identify relationally who this God is? It's awkward. It's uncomfortable because in one sense, he's frightening. He's massive. He's scary. He's not safe. But on the other side, he's fatherly. Dare I even say he's motherly, he's compassionate, he's tender, he's gentle, he's lowly. We'll put them together and understand the joy of knowing that while you deserve a tower to fall on you, God's not only committed to save you from the crushing tower of his wrath, he's thrilled to save you from that tower as his child because he delights in you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? If the mountains should tumble into the sea, if the earth itself should give way, what do we have to fear? Because God is sovereign. God has promised to care for us perfectly. God will finish what he began on the day of Christ Jesus. We are eternally secure. Unless you repent, you will perish. But once you have repented, you are eternally secure. Now, as we, we move forward from here, and, and I love the text for next week, where we begin to see this distinction separate between those who have, have denied Christ and those who have trusted in Christ and those who will trust in Christ. It's a, it's a massive distinction, but it's an incredible joy that we have for those of us who are in Christ. And it is an, an, an almost intellectually ungraspable, horrible context that people who have not trusted Christ are in. So let us go out and, and let people know God offers settlement terms out of court. Let us call people to truly follow Jesus as he calls them to, and let us have the joy that he intends for us. He who doesn't answer the question, why do bad things happen to good people? But he comes to tell us about the good thing that is offered to all bad people who will repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, please help us to see you accurately. Please help us to worship you in a manner pleasing to you as you call us to in your word. Please help us to see ourselves for who we are. Either apart from Christ, if someone hasn't trusted in you, or in Christ for those who have. Help us to remember the battle that wages within us between the flesh and the spirit, the old self and the new self. And help us be putting to death the flesh and walking in the spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Help us to understand the joy offered in repentance. You're not calling us to turn from a, a good thing to a bad thing or even an easy thing to a hard thing. 
You're calling us to turn from death to life, from fruitlessness to fruitfulness, from despondency to delight. God, your commandments are a joy and a delight to the heart as we see them for what they are, yourself for who you are, and ourselves for who we are in Christ. Lord, I pray that we who are in Christ may bear much fruit, but not to make ourselves look good, rather to glorify you and to show how good you are, that you would take what was dead and give it life, and that you would bear fruit through the lives of those you have saved in such a way that your name alone is glorified. Lord, help us to never live trying to exalt ourselves, but to delight in exalting you as we remember the incredible grace, love, and mercy bestowed upon us through you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who came to judge the earth, but before judgment comes your offer of grace, settlement with God out of court, and that settlement is total forgiveness, newness of life, adoption as a son of God, and eternal life with you, Lord God, face to face. That's just not fair. That's grace. And by grace through faith, we pray all of these things in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to the glory of the Father. Amen. We will close with a song. We will then have a benediction. JJ, you ready?